0: الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على إباده الذين صطف أما بعض فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هو الله أحد سبحان ربك رب al أما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب <trading> family, 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 Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala 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 Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala 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 Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ala,' Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. A couple weeks ago, I was at work, and I was um, wanting to ask my boss a question. So I headed to my boss's office, and when I got there, I saw that he was frantically searching on his computer reading different papers about treatment for a new disease the new treatments for a disease and I walked in and I could see he was very very engrossed in what he was working on so I came right at the door and as soon as I came to the door he looked up and I could tell uh, that he was busy and I didn't want to disturb him so Usually when that happens, I, I go like this, you know, because he's either on the phone or he's really busy. I go like this, meaning I'll turn around and come back later. He knows when I just do this. I flip my fingers this way. It means I'll turn around and come back another time. I see you're busy. So I went like this, you know. I didn't want to even say a word because I didn't want to even take his uh, focus from what he was doing because I know how intense he gets. So I went like this, and he uh, he looked up. And he said, no, 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 come in. I have to ask you something. So... I I went in and there's you always know, sit down at the chair. His door is basically open. You walk in and you ask you know questions on occasion. So I went in and I sat down, and he said, "Do you know anything about the latest treatments for neurodegenerative disorders?" Neurodegenerative disorders means like the nervous system begins to get damaged, and the person's not able to uh, you know. Uh, the control their muscles or whatever it might be appropriately depending on the disease. Uh, someone can tell you much more about this. Now, you know, you would think, okay, so this is a doctor asking a typical question, but the thing is that he doesn't know anything about neurodegenerative disorder. I, I shouldn't say he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know much about neurodegenerative disorders. That's not his specialty, nor is it even my specialty, nor is it even the specialty of most people in our group. This is not something that we do on a daily basis. It's not even something we talk about on a yearly basis, let alone I probably never in the last 10 years, since I've, 20 years almost now since I've been there, I don't ever remember having a conversation about this topic with him on any single occasion, and I've had multiple conversations. So it was a very strange question. So I said... Well, I mean, generally neurodegenerative disorders, the nerves in the human body, they get damaged, and they don't really repair themselves, and they don't regenerate. They might repair themselves. They don't regenerate. So I don't know if there's any new treatment, but I would imagine that the prognosis is bleak, meaning I don't know if there's any new treatment, but probably anybody who has these types of diseases, it's not very likely that there's going to be some great treatment for that disease. So then he said, uh, yeah, but there's all these new theories about this topic. So I said, yeah, I'm aware of the new theories, just generally, scientifically, I'm aware of these theories, but those are theories, they're they're still going to be a few years, if not decades before they get translated into something clinically relevant. So he said, are you sure about that? I said, no, no, I'm not sure about that. It's possible that there's something new and I don't know about it, but... That's just my, my thought. You're asking me a question that I don't have much information on, but this is just my thought process. So he said, no, 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 no. We need to look into this. We need to carefully look into this. We need to research, and we need to see, are there any new papers on this? So I said, but why? Like, why do you care? Like, okay, it's an interesting question, but why are you asking me this, and why are you so engrossed in this? He said, well, you know, I got an email. I got an email from someone who has a neurodegenerative disorder, and they're asking me if I know of any treatment for this disease. So I said, Yeah, but we get those emails all the time. We can't answer every single email. You can't just, like, every time a patient sends you an email, just go and answer that email. Why don't you refer them to a specialist? Why don't you refer them to somebody who might know more about this? He said, Yeah, but you know, how many people are going to really look into this and really, really Take this on. People are busy. People are busy. And this person sent me an email. So I feel like I have a responsibility to research this topic and to learn about this topic and respond to this email. So I started looking, you know, looking and thinking, wow, you know, subhanAllah. (laughs) I mean, it, you know, that's, that is like a, in the back of my mind, I started thinking, I I mean, I brought a lot of thoughts in my mind. But I just started thinking, you know, this is like a true doctor. Uh, what, what's one of the de- i mean there's a lot of things that define a doctor you know you expect a doctor to have knowledge about disease and you expect to have a doctor to have knowledge about how to figure out what disease people have and you expect a doctor to have knowledge about how to treat those diseases but that's like the everyday impression of a doctor but there's also a whole other aspect of being a doctor and that is that when the doctor takes on a patient the doc the patient's problems become like the doctor's problems the patient's problems become like the doctor's problems, meaning the doctor starts wanting to, has a desire, and wants to be able to cure everyone even though it's not possible. And that's a very unique characteristic to find. I mean, that is a the pinnacle of doctors. You know, not every doctor... I mean, every doctor has some concern and empathy and sympathy, et cetera. But to have that kind of... Um, you know, in this day and age, in today's, in today's world, to have that kind of person be someone's doctor is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And you hear these stories, you know, and I hear them on occasion when I'm at work, that there's this one doctor, and when the patients cry, the doctor sits and cries with them. And when the patient gets bad news, the doctor is more sad than the patient. And when the patient gets good news, the doctor's more happy than the patient. And that's a very, very unique characteristic to find in this day and age. In a physician, in a physician, it's a very unique characteristic to find in this day and age. But not only is it unique in a physician, but it's also unique in almost every sphere. Now, this this concern for people and this concern for humanity that's exemplified by this particular doctor. What the thought that was going through my mind after this interaction <coughs> was that. This is a concern that this concern that this doctor is exhibiting for, you know, whatever patient they interact with that is just a small fraction of the concern that the people of piety have for humanity as a whole. And this is a characteristic, you know, you say okay, well uh, if I was a I mean I know that the world thinks like this, you know, if I was a doctor I would have that. You know, that's like a natural reaction. People think, "Well, if I was a doctor, of course I would have that characteristic." But that's not an easy character. First of all, most people are not physicians, and even if you are a physician, it's not an easy characteristic to have. But every person in this room is a Muslim, and every person in this room has to have this characteristic towards all of humanity. Meaning, there has to be a desire within each person that's striving on Dean, there has to be a desire, not for themselves, but for others as well. And that desire has to be purely for them, not because it brings any benefit to us. If we see someone suffering, or we see someone undergoing a difficulty, or we see that we could uplift humanity in any way, that concern becomes our concern. And... The example would be, you know, if you want to know what type of concern we should have, everybody has a taste of it, and they have to learn to expand it. So, for example, you know, when we have, if we, anybody who's a parent in this room, they have a particular concern for their children. I wish my cho- if my children get sick, then I don't sleep. If my children don't do well in class, then I feel like I, would, I, I didn't do well. It's even worse than me not doing well. If my children don't succeed in life, I wish I didn't succeed in life and that they would succeed in life. Right. So th- this is a natural concern that exists in parents. Not only do they want what they would want for themselves, but actually parents want more for their children than they would want for themselves right? Because maybe I have a certain desire for myself, but I would even sacrifice my own benefit in order to make sure that my children had more. So that's the example. People often say that, oh, you know, you should do unto others as they would do unto you. I would actually extend that. I would just say, you should do unto others as you would want them to do unto your children, because that's even a stronger desire that, uh, that, you know, human beings tend to have. Now, this characteristic is something that actually comes from the sunnah, it's a natural characteristic that exists in human beings, but it's exemplified at, at its pinnacle from the sunnah. For example, Rasulullah he came with a responsibility. Now, what was his responsibility? His responsibility was to deliver a message. And in that message, it's clearly stated that the responsibility of the messenger is to deliver the message, not to make people believe Right, I mean, this we know. Rasulullah sallallahu His primary responsibility was to deliver the message, and this was what he would be held accountable for. It wasn't in his control to make people believe. It was in his control to deliver that message. If Allah decided that they would believe, they would believe, and if they didn't believe, they didn't believe. But this was not Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi primary um, responsibility was to deliver, not to force people into the message. But Rasulullah wasallam, not only did he perfectly deliver the message, but he had the ultimate and utmost concern that every person to whom the message came, that they follow and believe in that message. Listen, this is very important. Not only deli- did he deliver the message... But he had such a concern for the people to whom he delivered the message that he would not rest unless they would actually believe in that message as well. And this was a very, very unique characteristic of Rasulullah وسلم. And in fact, it's, it's mentioned in the Qur'an. It's mentioned in the Qur'an. baqi عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَسَفًا Perchance that you may annihilate yourself with grief. Look, look, at, that, look at the intensity of the wording here. Perchance you would annihilate yourself with grief if they upon their actions if, if they don't believe in this message. Just, just think about that, the, the state of Rasulullah how it must have been. I mean, let me just put it this way. You want more than anything in the world that your child, I don't know, do well in something. All right? And now you think that how much it would grieve you if you do everything and your child still doesn't, doesn't achieve that. I, I mean, I meet parents all the time. They come to me and they say... Oh, the only thing I wanted—I wanted my child to go to medical school. I never asked them for anything else. I just wanted them, and I haven't slept in six years because of this, you know. And this is like a person worrying about something that probably doesn't even matter in the grand scheme. I'm saying in the grand scheme, on the timeline of uh, existence, you know, probably doesn't even matter. And they can't sleep for six years. Now, think about Rasulullah Wasallam. Rasulullah Wasallam is delivering a message. And he's delivering a message which is the ultimate reality. The consequence of which, if it's not believed, is Jahannam. And of which he's excessively aware of the difficulties of Jahannam, which actually are permanent. And he is delivering this message with the hope that people will turn from their way towards this way. With no other secondary benefit. He's not going to make any money off of it. He's not going to gain anything from it. His status is his status. He's not concerned about the benefits of the 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 the, 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 the um the vanities of this life. And Rasulullah is so concerned that he has to be consoled in the Quran. That you know perchance you're going to annihilate yourself with concern. You know, that was Rasulullah state. He was paralyzed with concern that others would believe in the message. And if they wouldn't, he would, it, it would bring him to grief, such grief that he would almost just, you know, as if he was dying. He just couldn't d- take that. And he took that on, upon himself, not for one child, not for two children, not for five children, for the entire community. The entire community of people around him, whether they were believers, whether they were non-believers, he was constantly concerned about getting them to the next level. In the case of the believers, to bring them as close to deen as possible, to give them as much goodness as possible, to make them models so that they could benefit as many people as possible. In the case of the people that weren't believing, to bring, to find some way, any way, shape, or form. Any way, shape, or form to turn them towards this, towards this message. To turn them towards Allah. To turn them towards the mercy of Allah. Now, that's an amazing weight that Rasulullah carried on his shoulder. I mean, one can only begin to imagine, you know, only if you have children can you think, what is the weight that you carry for one child? What is the weight that you carry for two children? What's the weight that you carry for four children, five children? What's the weight that you carry when you go beyond that? Now, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is carrying that for the community, the adults, the elderly, and their children, in such a way that it's crushing his soul. But then you go one step further. Rasulullah was not solely concerned about the people in front of him. He was making dua and concerned about us today. Everybody in this room. He was concerned what would be the status of the deen and of the people and of the message until the end of time. Can you imagine how much weight, how much concern was on the shoulders of Rasulullah Now, Rasulullah He had this upon him. And of course, that's the weight that prophets can carry. That they're ama- they're, 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 they're obviously, they're these amazing um, beings that have this ability that the average person doesn't have. But when you know you hear this uh, this this notion that the ulama are the inheritors of the prophets, right? So then what happens is there's a subset of people in the community, they inherit that. Uh, the sunnah and when they inherit the sunnah the common translation is well they inherit the knowledge of deen and so as they inherit the knowledge of deen they also inherit the responsibility to spread that knowledge so in the case of ulama for example the ulama they inherit the knowledge of deen they take the responsibility of transmitting and parsing that deen out to the community the huffaz they inherit the knowledge of Quran and they take the responsibility of parsing that and distributing it around the community. The Mashaikh, they inherit the spiritual aspects of deen, they take that responsibility, they parse it out amongst the community. But one thing that we have to remember, and this is very important, is that not only do they inherit these statements or wisdoms or uh, or, or transmissions that have been preserved by our deen, but they inherit that responsibility as well. They inherit that concern as well. And then what happens is that concern pervades through them and they carry that weight for us. Otherwise, what would be driving them? Right? I mean, it's not like we have anything to offer them. When we sit in the company of our Mashiach. when we sit in the company of Ulama, what do we have to offer them? We have nothing that we could give them. <laughs> They, they, they uh, take this concern upon themselves, they carry this weight uh, on their shoulders because of their love of deen and their love of community. And if we don't appreciate it, then we fail to be able to make appropriate du'a for them. For example, until we appreciate, and the dean highlights this, so I'm just highlighting this, until we appreciate what our parents have done for us, We can never begin to repay. Now, notice the wording I used. Until we appreciate what our parents have done for us, we can never begin to repay. I didn't say you can repay. I just said begin to repay. That's the first step. There is no last step because we can never repay. But until we appreciate what our parents have done for us, how can we repay? You, You know, the concern that they carry, the difficulty that they undergo whether that be the physical difficulty of just childbirth or the uh, psychological difficulty of carrying the weight of concern, you know, worrying about why the baby's crying in the middle of the night, worrying about whether the child is achieving their full potential, worrying about whether the child's on the 5th or 10th percentile in the growth chart, worrying about whether the child is happy and healthy. So these are all things that weigh upon a parent. Now, who appreciates that? Why does the deen give the, the parent such a status and why, why, how, do we, how are we able to live up to that? You can't just live up to that because shaitan is always interfering in that. A person has to appreciate that. They have to appreciate and understand what actually a parent has done before they're able to even begin to reciprocate that. So the deen highlights those things for us. The Quran highlights those things for us. The Sunnah highlights those things for us. Now that's the example of the parents. But it actually goes beyond that. It also falls in the court of how we interact with the ulama, how we interact with the Huffaz and the people who teach our children Quran, how we interact with the mashayikh, the dua that we have for the mashayikh, the dua that we have for the ulama, the dua that we have for the Huffaz, and how we appreciate and, and be grateful for the responsibilities that they carry on their shoulder. And people don't understand this. It was, it's funny because <laughs> a, a couple days ago, I was somewhere, and someone uh, stopped me. Uh, while we were, I was walking out of a place, someone uh, stopped me and said, you know, I would uh, wanted to talk to you for a few weeks now. Uh, can, we, can I have a few minutes just to ask you a couple questions? So I, I said, okay, I happen to have a few minutes. Let's just take care of it now because otherwise it's going to be difficult later on to try to find a time. Now is the best time if you're available. So they said, Okay, I'm, we're, we're available. So uh, I'm discussing with them, and they said, Well, you know, I'm trying to develop myself spiritually, and I would like to come on a routine, and these are the things that I'm thinking. And um, so uh, they asked all these questions, and uh, at the end, they said, Okay, so what's my responsibility? So what's my responsibility? So I said, you have to fill out your credit card in fifteen ninety nine a month, and you now I'm going to charge you every month. No, I didn't say that. It's just like Allah. I just see if everybody's sleeping or awake. So, I mean, well, what do you mean? What's your responsibility? There's no charge. There's no card. You know, there's no. Your responsibility. Your responsibility is very simple. Your responsibility is that you have to make your best effort to try to approach Allah. And you have to recite, we ask that you recite Quran daily. We ask that you make a and salawat daily. We ask that you spend a few minutes doing the zikr of Allah. We ask that you try to come to, to the gatherings as much as possible. So they said, okay, you know, uh, jazakallah. I'm going. And I said, very important, you make a and then you'll come to some conclusion. And when you come to that conclusion, inshallah, you know, you'll be able to decide whether this is the right thing for you or not. So, um, you know, they were, they were done. But what they didn't, and the conversation concluded, I'm the other person was very grateful. But what they don't appreciate is that there's a whole other paradigm and a whole other side to that, which is that, okay, fine, so now you take on this responsibility, but when you take on this responsibility, now there's a new headache. There's another headache. There's another angle of it. Like, what's my responsibility? My responsibility is now I have to worry about, you know, one more child. So, you know, not that that's something to complain about or be unhappy about but the point is that this is a, it's not just about it's not a one-way street you know what can you do for me that's what everybody wants to know <laughs> what can you do for me where will i be how will i end up it's actually a two-way street so so many talks that we give we talk about the benefits of BEA, the importance you know the baraka of bea etc and i think you know over the last few months we've had several of those talks but i think the other thing that we have to appreciate is that you know what the big responsibility on the on the student is to make the for the Mashiach. Every student of HIFS, by the way, should make the for their HIFS teacher. Because I can tell you that even more concerned than the parents are the, are the teachers of HIFS about how their child is progressing. If anybody has done HIFS or has their children done, done HIFS, you know that the, the parents are always asking, Okay, so they're on 20. How many more months is this going to be? When will they get to 21? When will they get to 22? Why aren't they on 21? Why aren't they on 26? Right? But actually, the teacher worries just as much as the parent. Now, we don't see that because we're caught up in our own dimension, and so, rightly so, we're worried about things from our own perspective. But, you know, how many parents actually go to the teacher and say, Are you okay? You're handling 26 kids and 26 parents, and the parents are coming to you. each parent is coming to you and knocking at your door and calling you and texting you and asking why you're where my child is and why they haven't achieved this and that. Are you okay? You've got the stress on you. You've got 26 people to worry about, and they they drive you crazy. I mean, the parents can't handle their own kids, let alone 26 of them on top of the the, the, the office's head. And uh, who who asked the the teacher of hips, are you okay? How many times have we gone to the teacher and said? Just don't worry about where they're at. Jazakallah. I know how difficult this is. I know how much weight you must be carrying on your shoulder. Just thank you for, for, for dealing with, with, my, with my son or daughter. And it's, it's not only the case with, 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 this, with the students of Hiv. It's also the case with the students of knowledge. It's the case with the Masha'iq. It's the case with people of Deen. They have a general concern for uh, the people that they interact with and perhaps even beyond that sphere and it becomes a big responsibility, even even a good teacher, you know a few weeks ago, I had to go to the uh what do you call it the curriculum you know curriculum night at uh at school for my children and uh, we sat in the in the room of one of the uh, teachers, and the teacher said uh, that you know, a lot of times the teachers sit there, and the teachers will say, I'm going to teach your children this, and this, and this, and we're going to do this, and this is the book, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do this, and this is how much the final counts for, and this is how much this counts for. And they give you this entire 10-minute uh, presentation on everything that's going to happen in the class. So, and, and I appreciate that and understand that, and you walk out and you say, okay, wow, they're going to do this, and you know, here, now we've got a very good picture of exactly what's going to happen. But sometimes you sit in the room and the teachers say, you know, these are my kids. And I, I want them to excel just as much as you want them to excel. And we're a partner in this. You know, just as much concern as you have on what brought you here tonight is the same concern that brings me here every day and also brought me here tonight. And when the teacher speaks like that, it's a very different dynamic. It's a very different dynamic in the classroom because... Now that parents are on board, and the teacher's on board, and everybody's on the same page. And if they start that way, and then they say, well, we're going to do this and this and this, it has a little bit of a different tone to it than, okay, well, all these things are going to occur. So that's the sign of a teacher. Teachers have that. Maybe they don't articulate that, but that's the true sign of a teacher. When the teacher looks at those kids that are sitting in front of them, and for every single one of them wants the best that they can do, That's the sign of the, of a teacher. Now, you know, what are the, what are the technicalities of that? Well, we're going to go through chapter one and then chapter two. And for those who are a little more advanced, we'll create a group that will focus on chapter three. Those are the, the specifics. Those are the details. But what's, what's the driving force there? The driving force there is that each of these kids before me are entrusted to me. And I want that every single one of these children achieve their potential. And until they achieve their potential, I will not have done my job. And because in order for me to make them achieve their potential, I need the help of the parents. This is what we need to do as a team. (coughs) So that teacher becomes very productive. And that teacher is able to achieve something because of that fikir. You know, we call this fikir, concern. The the term for this is fikir. That fikir is driving that individual. So this is the fikir that everybody... Now look, this fikir is distributed amongst the community right? So some people will have, you have to start with having fiqh for yourself. Every person has to have a concern for themselves. And then, of course, naturally it extends to your family, your loved ones, your children. From there it extends beyond that. Can we develop our fiqh and advance our fiqh so that we have a concern for the greater family members, right? Sometimes even in a family that's, a, that's a, a, an issue, Or can we expand that fiqr and concern so that it applies to the community as a whole, whether that be the Muslims or then even in general beyond that to the non-Muslims? And it just continues in spheres and depths. You know, the sphere is how far does it go? The depth is what is it for? You know, are you concerned about their hips? Are you concerned about their hips and their deen? Are you concerned about their akhira? Are you concerned about making sure that they achieve the best in every angle of their life? So there's depth of fiqr and there's the sphere. There's the dimension of fiqr as well. And we are very, very fortunate. We are very, very fortunate that we are present in that ocean of fiqh. Because, obviously, we have the greatest example in Rasulullah Sallallahu and the concern that he had for us. I mean, think about this. Think, think about this concern. That on the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, when no one will recognize the other, you know, brother and sister will not recognize each other, Everyone will be running from one another. Children will be running from their parents. Parents will be running from their children. Everyone will be concerned about themselves. Everybody's just worried about getting themselves into Jannah and avoiding the Jahannam. You know, on that day when everybody's running around like madmen, Rasulullah will be sitting there concerned about every member of the community. And will intercede. And will not enter into Jannah until the last of the uh, community enters into Jannah. Just imagine, that's the depth of fikr, that it extends to the end of time at the deepest of of the ocean. His fikr extends from the, till the end of time to the deepest point. Where are you going to find that? But that's, it. But, but what attracts that? You know, what makes Rasulullah wasallam how, how can we attract that? How can we gain that tawaju? That's tawajjuh, by the way, right? How can that attention turn towards us? Well, I mean, one, just by being a Muslim, you get you attract that tawajjuh of Rasulullah. But then, beyond that, when a person carries responsibility on their shoulder, it magnifies that. The more we carry on our shoulders, the more it magnifies. The more we take on that responsibility that was so burdening on Rasulullah's soul the more that gets magnified. When there's an individual that spends their time worrying about Quran and how it can be spread within the community. When there's an individual that spends their time worrying about the knowledge of deen, how to please Allah and how to avoid displeasing Allah and spreads that within the community. When there's a person that spends, spends their time worrying about the spiritual state of individuals and spreads that within the community. Those are people that take that responsibility on their shoulder and they attract a special tawajjuh. They attract a special attention. So this is something that, first of all, we should appreciate. Why am I mentioning this? Because at least we should appreciate it and make dua. And second of all, we should, take on, we should open ourselves to it. We should be ready to take responsibility. We should be ready to carry weight. We should be ready to serve. We should have a concern that goes beyond ourselves. When we have a concern that goes beyond ourselves, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care of our concerns. If we get caught up in our own concerns and we're focused on them, then we'll be totally drowned in those. When a person takes other people's responsibilities on their shoulders, then Allah takes care of those uh, their concerns for them. So this is something that all of us should aim towards. It's part of our saluk. It's part of our process. It's part of our development. So we ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us among those who are able to appreciate the fikr and concern that the people around us have for us, and in particular that we're able to appreciate and... Um, and recognize the concern that Rasulullah SAW had for us, and may Allah subhanahu wa taala protect us from the difficulties in both this life and the next. Wa akhirat awana, and alhamdulillahirobbilalamin.